PR Pro Cannabis Media. Well, thank goodness it is Friday afternoon. That means another really live edition of Green Rush, the business of cannabis talk show that Pro Cannabis Media produces every Friday afternoon from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. That would be your Eastern time. I'm Jimmy Young, the founder of Pro Cannabis Media. And I tell you what, this one is really live. Uh, last week, we had a little few technical difficulties because I forgot my computer before I drove down to New York. So it's my fault. But we ran a, we ran a, re, a rerun and everybody seemed to be happy. We had some good good stuff in the chat room. And uh, But this is definitely really live. Joining me this Friday afternoon and someone who's becoming more and more regular as a, as a guest host is Josh Kincaid from the Talking Hedge in Washington State. Hello, Josh. Hey, Jimmy, I'm getting attacked by my cat live right now. Hey, there you go. What's the name of your cat, Josh? Panucci. It's Panucci. French for fudge. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And joining us from the nation's capital on this Friday afternoon is our dear friend from Normal. His name is Morgan Fox. Hello, Morgan. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Josh. So here we are. You, you're in Washington, D.C. I'm in the Boston area, now in Clinton, Massachusetts. Check that one out on your map. And uh, Josh is out in Washington State. So we've got the nation covered here. And I keep hearing these, these inklings, these rumors, these, these notes from different people that the lame duck Congress has a shot to reform cannabis laws. How accurate are those reports, Morgan? Very accurate. Although the exact nature of what that reform will look like is uh, really difficult to tell at this point. Uh, the negotiations that have been going on between uh, Senate leadership and uh, Senate Republicans about exactly how far uh, they're willing to go and what uh, that balancing point is going to be between um, what Democrats are willing to support and what Republicans are willing to tolerate, basically, uh, has been kept very close to the vest. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I was... Uh, talking with uh, um, a very prominent senator's uh, staff uh, just the other day, and they said that even they, after multiple requests, hadn't gotten the details about exactly where uh, things stand yet. And I know that uh, many of my uh, um, advocate uh, colleagues are feeling some similar frustration that we don't exactly know uh, where things are right now. Uh, but I think a lot of it also depends on uh, the outcome of the, uh, the midterms, uh, both in terms of um, what the makeup of uh, the next House and Senate are going to be, but also how the five uh, state legalization uh, ballot initiatives are going to turn out, um, which, I mean, I think could have a, a real big impact. Absolutely. You were talking about Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Maryland, and Arkansas, the five. Of those five, which one do you think is the one that is 50-50 uh, may not pass? Well, so uh, Oklahoma actually isn't happening until March of next year. Um, okay. So, yeah, we're, we're looking at Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Um, Arkansas is 50-50 right now. Um, I am cautiously optimistic that it will pass. Um, you know, we've got uh, you know, about 11 days until uh, the election, and I think that um, now that the 
opposition forces have pretty much done everything that they can do, including uh, lying about what the initiative does, uh, pitting uh, supporters against each other, um, et cetera, et cetera, that the uh, the campaign in favor is uh, really hitting its stride right now and is going to make a big impact on voters uh, as we go forward. Plus, there's a lot of undecided voters there. Um, so I, I'm cautiously optimistic on that one. Um, Maryland is uh, looking like a slam dunk. Yeah. Uh, Washington Post reported 73% support uh, just uh, um, uh, a little bit ago. And um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, from a, a policy and election wonk like myself, I thought that that poll was super interesting because we've always wondered about exactly what effect having cannabis policy reform and legalization measures on the ballot does for the rest of the ballot, whether it's down ticket items, overall voter turnout, et cetera. And really, I think that this might have been the first poll that really showed what impact uh, legalization measures could have on turnout, particularly during a midterm election that typically sees a lot less turnout. Um, and the turnout that it does see always tends to be older and more conservative. But that same poll showed that uh, a majority of the people that were in not intending to vote, they expressed that they didn't plan to vote when reminded that marijuana was on the ballot, completely flipped their decision and said that they absolutely were going to vote. So uh, I think it's great to finally start seeing data like that. And I hope that we can get uh, a lot more exit polling and uh, more uh, in-depth research on this concept going forward so that we can determine exactly how these things affect uh, broader elections and help us uh, fine-tune strategy going forward. Yeah. Um, looking at Missouri, um, the polling is really all over the place. I mean, last month, two polls came out, one of them showing 62% and one of them showing 48% support. Um, big undecided uh, uh, margins on both. So I think that it's anybody's guess. Um, I should note that Arkansas and Missouri seem to be the states where there is the, uh, uh, the most organized opposition as well as um, the most establishment opposition. Uh, but uh, in general, I think that these things uh, both stand a chance of, uh, of really uh, doing well in uh, uh, the elections coming up. Um, the Dakotas are an interesting uh, situation. For North Dakota, we don't really have any recent polling to look at. Um, you know, is, it, there, uh, is there enough people in North Dakota actually to conduct a poll? <laughs> well, it'll take you 10 years to get around to everybody. <laughs> uh, but, and that's you know, one of the problems with even getting things on the ballot in states like that, um, because it, uh, it, it just costs so much more money to be actually able to reach uh, potential voters and get those signatures. And then uh, when you're talking about outreach, yeah, the media markets are small and relatively inexpensive to uh, start to inundate, but uh, actually getting across to people and doing real grassroots organizing is a lot more difficult when you're in places with lower population density. Uh, but we saw that in... Uh, uh, 2020 voters narrowly rejected a legalization measure in North Dakota. Um, but then the following year, uh, the uh, state House of Reps approved a, a legalization bill that was then stalled by the Senate. Uh, the initiative this year is very much modeled on the version that the House passed uh, in order to uh, kind of grease the wheels a little bit and make sure that it wasn't going to be uh, uh, challenged via lawsuit over its constitutionality should it pass uh, or even before it gets on the ballot. Uh, and uh, you're pretty, uh, pretty confident that that one is, is going to pass. I'll bet possibly by a narrow margin, but it's impossible to tell at this point. Uh, South Dakota is the one that's really kind of a surprise. 
But I mean, as you know, um, in 2020, uh, South Dakota voters approved uh, medical cannabis by a wide margin and adult use by a, a pretty decent majority. I think it was above 55%. Uh, first state ever, and a conservative state no less, to actually pass an adult use initiative without a pre-existing medical program in place. So, I mean, it was really a game changer. And then the governor decided to use taxpayer money to uh, file a lawsuit to invalidate the, uh, the measure. It went in front of a judge that she appointed. So of course, it, uh, the lawsuit was effective and then the Supreme Court upheld the appeal. Um, interestingly enough, the most recent polling that we've seen shows uh, that support is, for the measure is around uh, just a little bit above 43%. Now, uh, my colleagues on the ground there tell me that that polling is inaccurate. Um, and I think that a lot of things can happen, uh, you know, between now and election day. Uh, I mean, generally, though, I think that seeing a, more than a 10% drop between people actually voting for something two years ago, and then a very, very similar uh, initiative coming up with, uh, you know, more than 10% less uh, support, it seems a little questionable. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to have to wait and see on that. And admittedly, that most recent polling was from uh, middle of summer. So uh, I'm not sure how much we could trust it. We should take it with a grain of salt. Either way, uh, you know, my colleagues at MPP and uh, a number of other uh, uh, coalition groups are working hard there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the Dakotas will, uh, will move as well. Uh, end of the day, though, we're looking at very, very, very likely at least one state being added uh, after uh, Election Day. Right. Morgan, did you say that it was a ballot initiative or legislative initiative? The, that uh, last, it was okay. Yeah, and and here's an interesting thing about South Dakota, and we all know that Christy Nome is the governor there, and she's the one who just would not accept what the voters voted in, and she led the charge. But wouldn't you know it? Um, back in August, which was only three months ago or two months ago, I'm not, I, I've lost count at this point. Um, she said she would pledge to implement ca cannabis legalization if voters approved the ballot initiative. An, she said that an event in, in, in August. Now, a lot of people think she's changed her tune because she's up for re-election. Is she up for re-election at this at, in 11 days? Well, I mean, I think that uh, even besides that, um, the amount of backlash that she got for overturning the will of the people and using taxpayer money to do so uh, definitely hurt. Uh, yeah. This is actually something that has become somewhat more commonplace um, as uh, prohibitionists have increasingly lost the hearts and minds of the American people. Uh, they know that they can't win on the merit of their arguments because there are none. Um, and uh, so they have increasingly turned to either keeping uh, initiatives off the ballot or challenging them after they've won. And this is just patently anti-democratic. But when you, uh, uh, when you don't have winning arguments, you don't have any choice other than to strip away uh, people's voting rights. And it's a lot easier for groups like this to be able to influence lawmakers, um, largely because they're able to more easily, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to trick a small group of people into believing your BS. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you have a small group of people down there that you haven't been able to uh, manage that well uh, over the last uh, couple, you know, dozen years or so, because there's only so many legislators down there, but they all seem to only be concerned about their own reelection. Josh, I know you've got uh, a question or two. Go ahead. I'm curious. You mentioned midterm, Morgan, and, and that how that may impact um, how things are moving forward. But I'm curious, does it actually matter?
it seems bipartisan enough. Does it actually matter what happens in the midterms or are we just on a train that's moving forward regardless? Well, I mean, things are definitely progressing. And, um, you know, in one respect, I think that, um, you know, we're going to continue to see uh, progress. I mean, we've got a ton of momentum. Um, and also it's becoming more and more obvious to lawmakers across the political spectrum that not only is this an issue that their constituents and their bases support, uh, but also that it is uh, not just a fringe issue. It's actually something that they are prioritizing to a much greater level than their elected officials. So as these realizations start to increasingly dawn on lawmakers, I think we're going to see uh, continued movement in the right direction. Um, you know, there are just some intricacies and nuances that might slow things down or speed things up, depending on what happens. And there's so many different variables at play here. But, uh, you know, I think that the outcome of the midterms in terms of uh, who controls Congress or either chamber of Congress uh, absolutely will have an impact on what uh, is able to be accomplished in the lame duck. Uh, for instance, if uh, Republicans win both chambers, then they have no real reason or political impetus other than the uh, members that are active supporters of this issue uh, to actually move something in the, uh, the lame duck rather than waiting until the next session when they uh, control things. The, same logic goes for if Democrats retain control of both chambers. Uh, they no longer have that uh, motivation to get something done under the wire, uh, even though it would surely be uh, very popular for uh, their constituents, uh, particularly in states that have already enacted modern, sensible cannabis policies. Uh, if the chambers remain split control, then I think we have a... Um, a better environment in which to get things done in the lame duck because it's anybody's guess what will be uh, able to be accomplished in the the upcoming session. Speaking of, will he be able to delist anything? He mentioned that Biden mentioned that before. Was that just to um, create some hyperbole, or you know, to, to create some buzz, or is he he has is he serious about that? He's actually have some action behind those words. And what's the most likely outcome you think? Is it going to follow like the the liquor, uh, and and how that was kind of just left up to the states? Um, have you heard any any updates on that? All right. So the Biden uh, announcement that called on relevant federal agencies to review the uh, placement of cannabis as a Schedule One substance. Uh, it was definitely very useful because I think it highlighted the fact that Schedule 1 is an entirely inappropriate uh, uh, placement for cannabis. Um, and it brought a lot of attention to it. There are a lot of people talking about it now. Um, you know, we've heard from these federal agencies that, uh, including the FDA, that this is now a, a high priority to uh, pursue this, uh, this review process. However, uh, in order to actually get this review uh, accomplished is going to take a lot of work on the part of many different federal agencies. Um, it's also going to require, if we want a positive outcome, heads of these federal agencies to basically backtrack and admit that they were wrong for decades. Very unlikely to happen. The process itself also takes years, even if it's being fast-tracked. Um, now, if we are looking at uh, the history of the uh, of schedule uh, review petitions. Normal has been filing these petitions since 1970. 
And every single time it has taken years to even get the petition uh, accepted. It's taken more years to even get the, uh, the petition or, uh, or to get the review process done. And then as in the case in 1988, when the DEA's own administrative law judge ruled that there was absolutely no reason for cannabis to be on schedule one. And that in fact, it was quote, one of the safest therapeutic substances known to man, the DEA said, that's not binding. We're not going to follow that. And that has happened several times since then. So the idea that we can trust federal agencies to conduct this review process and arrive at the right answer that cannabis should be descheduled, because we all know that rescheduling would be an absolute disaster. It would not change the uh, uh, anything about the federal state conflict. It wouldn't decriminalize cannabis in any way, shape or form. It would cause total chaos in state programs. Uh, but we can't afford to wait for this drawn out bureaucratic process, the result of which we are completely unsure of. Uh, but the fact that Biden has called for this review is incredibly useful because it is adding uh, motivation for Congress to step in and do it more effectively. Uh, cannabis was placed in Schedule 1 by Congress, and I think that it will ultimately be removed from the schedule entirely because uh, uh, through Congress. Hey, so I, I just uh, got a whatever this is, I guess it would be a news article. I never know if it's a newspaper article or a newsletter or it's a distribution press release, but um, it it's still saying that the DEA will have the final word about what happens with the cannabis scheduling. And it's weird because the FDA is the one that seems to be leading the charge to make changes, but both, both of these little organizations, little organizations, the bureaucratic organizations in our in our country are all saying, well, we need to do more research. They can't do research because they've already screwed that up already. So how, where do you think this, if you were the president or you were the, the, the czar of the world, Morgan, and you could say, this is either a drug or a plant, therefore under the DEA or the agricultural world, where would it be most effective? You know, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, we know that the FDA is not going to be able to effectively regulate cannabis as a plant. Um, they can probably effectively regulate cannabinoid-derived or cannabinoid-based uh, drugs. Um, but, you know, really, when it comes down to it, there are a bunch of different uh, organizations or agencies that are in charge of this. The DEA pretty much has final say, and they have um, structural inertia uh, working against this. So uh, I think it, it's very, uh, again, you know, we're, we're really going to have to have Congress uh, step in and do this. And I'm hoping that um, the uh, the fact that uh, Biden's announcement was met with overwhelming public approval uh, across the political spectrum uh, with, you know, a few uh, outliers like folks like Tom Cotton um, will uh, really help motivate Congress to address this issue and take it out of the DEA's hands, take it out of HHS's hands and uh, take it ultimately out of the FDA's hands and then determine proper roles uh, themselves for these federal agencies regarding cannabis and cannabinoid uh, uh, drugs and other substances going forward. Yeah. The and FDA more... couldn't, couldn't even come out with um, regulations for CBD after the farm bill passed. So I'm not real confident that they're going to do anything here other than to muck up the whole process. Josh, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, it's all right. I was going to ask you if um, the recent news about Germany had any influence or um, 
any drive in making that any of that happen faster? Uh, you know, I haven't heard any members of Congress really speaking about that. Um, Do they even know? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, Congress is kind of a weird place. You know, they uh, they lean on um, uh, international uh, developments when it suits their purposes and then ignore them when it doesn't. So I think that it's uh, it's difficult to tell what sort of uh, uh, impact uh, Germany's uh impending legalization is going to have um you know i one thing that you know i have been telling people for years is that uh you know the u.s is in danger of being left behind in the international cannabis market um because of the continued intransigency of uh of federal law and, and of congress and so if we're worried about uh all of the various factors that go into making the united states a continued uh um top uh player in uh in global markets uh this is one area where uh we could pretty easily stop uh the uh the slow ebb of the rest of the world passing us by is there any shot of a federal cannabis agency being created and its only concern would be the uh, the hemp world and the thc cannabis world is there any hope for that and is it or is it actually would add another layer of bureaucracy to this whole issue well there's been a lot of discussion about that and i think that it's possible i'm not necessarily sure that it's wise uh, there would still be a lot of other agencies that would have uh, uh, some interaction with uh, cannabis and cannabis policy and cannabis regulation um, and we know that uh, you know there are already systems in place and agencies in place that have experience dealing with this sort of thing um, you know, whatever aspect of uh, the uh, regulatory structure or control that you're uh, talking about and creating new agencies is incredibly difficult. I mean, it's hard enough to get the ones that exist to do their jobs right. Uh, adding new ones is a, a whole other, uh, uh, you know, jar of snakes. Uh, not to mention, like, once you actually get it created, then you actually have to get it uh, up and running and get it to uh, make sure that it's effective. That can take years. Um, and we don't really want to prolong the process that much. Um, you know, I think that what is probably most likely is that there might be a new department uh, built off of existing an existing agency that is primarily concerned with um, the restorative justice components of any sort of descheduling and regulation bill. Um, but I tend to think that it would be a lot easier and a lot quicker to just uh, uh, effectively define what roles existing uh, agencies have in this process. Yeah. And, and lastly, I just want to get your reaction to what was the reaction to President Biden saying that he was going to let out, you know, 6,500 convicted, uh, excuse me, pardon 6,500 uh, federally convicted possession or nonviolent cannabis criminals. And of course, the entire industry and everybody's writing articles about this doesn't affect anybody, right? Well, I mean, the 6,500 people that are eligible for it would say otherwise. Um, well, who are they? Because I have yet to hear anybody say, here's an example of someone who was pardoned. That's what I'm waiting to hear, because most people are saying this was window dressing. At least this is the scuttlebutt I got out of New York last week. Well, um, Chris Goldstein, uh, Normal's uh, Northeast uh, Regional Coordinator, is uh, one of the people that would be directly impacted by that and is eligible for a pardon. Um, 
also you have to think that these go back to 1992 and up until five years ago. So there are a lot of people that, um, that this is going to impact. And, you know, just because they're not activists and not, uh, you know, um, you know, in the public limelight doesn't mean they don't exist and doesn't mean that those charges haven't been hanging over their heads, negatively impacting their ability to live a normal life and reach their full potential. No, but I think I think the argument, though, was that there's not a single person that's in there simply for possession. They they had other things that they had with them. So intent to distribute, for example, isn't simply just um, a possession. So there's not a single person that's going to be affected by that law unless they expand it. No, that's that's not the case. Um, what you're talking about is uh, incarceration. Now, there may or may not be anybody that's in federal prison uh, for uh, simple possession charges. I tend to think that there aren't, but the simple possession charges definitely do happen. And there's roughly 6,500 people that it will impact. So just to clarify, because I think we're talking about two different things. One is the people that are still in prison. One are the people that are out of prison. So you're saying the people that are out of prison can be affected, but no one in prison are going to... It's not going to help anybody. Yeah, a few, if any, people that are currently incarcerated will be uh, directly impacted by this, other than to have that one charge uh, pardoned. You know, so uh, and also um, the pardons actually only affect people who have been out of prison or out of supervised court release programs for at least five years up until the date of uh, that announcement. Mm-hmm. So um, it doesn't really affect anybody that's in prison. But that is really kind of besides the point, because, you know, admittedly, we do have to worry about the incarceration issue. But the collateral consequences of a cannabis conviction at the federal level are huge and go way beyond prison. We're talking about negatively impacting your ability to get education, employment, housing, uh, medical care, uh you know, everything from uh, child custody issues to professional licensure. Uh, the collateral consequences of these criminal records are huge and can really just uh, set people back for the rest of their lives in terms of limiting their uh, potential to be uh, productive and uh, fully contributing members of society and live their, uh, reach their full potential. So, you know, when people say, oh, this isn't letting anybody out of jail, I say, yeah, well, we're going to get to that. But right now, there are 6,500 people who are going to have an easier time going through life and being the best that they can be after these announcements. And those are real people. And and, and one of those you just, I'm pretty sure I heard this right. It, was it um, Goldstein, the Northeast director of uh, Normal? Yeah, he's definitely a person that is uh, eligible for uh, uh, the pardon. Uh, I should point out as well that a pardon is not an expungement. Uh, right. It doesn't actually clear your record. It you just means me that. that like you have been pardoned on this date. But even that, you know, uh, that affects things like voting rights. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. And and by the way, you're the one who explained the difference. So I, I appreciate that. Hey, um, Morgan Fox, uh, first of all, I'd love an intro to that guy since you guys are in the same uh, sandbox, basically, of normal. Uh, I'd love to hear his story. I really would. I mean, you know me, I want to tell the stories of the industry. So uh, tell him he's welcome anytime on our program here on a Friday afternoon or even uh, at a time that might be more convenient for him. Because I really think the world needs to hear that there actually is someone out there who is positively affected by that announcement by the president. And look, even if it was window dressing, I live to hear the day that the president of the United States recognized that the laws were not just for cannabis. 
And that was a huge win for the entire industry and anybody and all the advocates who are out there waving the flag and have been waving that flag for decades. So uh, I'm not knocking anything. I'm just happy we're actually able to talk about it and continue to talk about it. And we will continue to talk about it, Morgan Fox, with you on the third Friday of every month. And I so appreciate your, your regularity with us. And uh, we will be back in just a few minutes. And it would be me and Josh. And watch, we're going to juggle for 30 minutes. You're going to love this. It's going to be fun. Don't go away. Uh, Green Rush Live continues after this. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out. And check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.